Seconds of downtime. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> you might want to save that until it's over. You might <laughs> wish you hadn't said that. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, your word has so many events, so many things in it that we just don't see. We overlook them, Lord, and it's like they... We're never there to begin with. But Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit and with the help of those that you have spoken to in the past, we begin to see things that were veiled for a long time. And I just pray that you would open our eyes today that we might see the details that we overlook, Lord, the things that show us how glorious your word is and how there's nothing there by accident. Lord, we just pray that you would uh, teach us and guide us this day by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to actually continue with Samson in the book of Judges. Um, so you might want to get out the notes that you've been taking in the past and look them over. I don't see anybody doing that, so. <laughs> We're actually going to be in, now I've just knocked this off, I don't know if it matters or not. We're, we're going to be uh, in chapter 15 in the book of Judges. No, we actually did it at uh, Susan. Continued in Susan, so you you missed some. So your your notes are out of date. That was C. I see. I want. I get. Pretty much. <laughs> we ought to always ask ourselves the question: If I stay on the path that I'm on right now, where am I going to end up? And um, most of us haven't asked that question in the past, or at least we didn't for a long time. Because if we did, we wouldn't end up places we didn't want to end up. And it's a question that obviously never occurred to Samson, because his eyes controlled him. But it's also a question that Israel never bothered to ask very often either because they ended up being devastated over a period of hundreds of years. The great problem for Israel for hundreds of years were people called the Philistines. 
And it started, we don't know exactly when, but they're prominent in the book of Judges as thorns and even more than thorns in the side of Israel. Continues on all the way through the reign of King Saul and only toward the end of David's reign do you see the Philistines finally subjugated to a point that they're no longer a threat to Israel. So for hundreds of years, because the book of Judges runs from about anywhere from 350 to 400 years. And throughout a good portion of that, the Philistines are a great, great problem for Israel. We saw in the very first chapter about Samson's parents. And it tells us a little bit about them. There's a a quote from the Jewish historian Josephus that says about Samson's parents, there was one Manoah, a person of such great virtue that he had few men his equals, and without dispute the principal person of his country. He had a wife celebrated for her beauty and excelling her contemporaries. Now this is not scripture, it's Josephus. But obviously there are bound to be some truth there because this is Jewish tradition about Samson's parents. So he had a godly base for his life. Obviously God called him, he gave him godly parents, and he often didn't adhere to that tradition. In the book of Numbers, in uh, the 32nd chapter, Moses is given instruction to the tribes of Israel before they go into the promised land. And he's telling basically, he's talking basically to the tribes of Gad and Reuben because these two tribes are going to have claim their inheritance on the side of Jordan before everybody goes to the other side. And he's talking to them about, you need to go with your brothers into the promised land and battle their enemies too. You can't just stay here and think that uh, God's not going to hold you responsible. He says you have, he says that if you don't help your brothers, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. And Samson is beginning to see throughout this narrative that his sin is finding him out. The lust of his eyes is leading him to one sin after another. In chapter 15 of Judges, Samson is the very, very first part. He's begun to cool off from the devastation that he inflicted on the Philistines in chapter 14. If you remember what happened, they had threatened Samson's wife. They said they were going to burn her and her father alive if they didn't tell, if she didn't find out what Samson's riddle was all about. And so she keeps after Samson 
again and again, and he finally gives up and tells her. And they tell Samson the answer that his wife has given him. And, of course, he's enraged, and he knows that his wife has done this. And the wager was whoever guesses the riddle, the other one pays them 30 changes of clothing. And 30 changes of clothing was an immense wager at that time. So that Samson loses because of treachery, and he gets enraged, and he goes out and he kills 30 Philistines, Philistines, takes their clothing and pays off his debt. And he's so enraged afterwards that he pays off, that he goes to his father's house for a while to cool off. And after he cools off, he decides to go back and see his wife again. And then in verse 15, the first three verses say, After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, I will go to my wife in her room. But her father did not let him enter. Her father said, I really thought that you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. Samson then said to them, This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson was not impressed with the offer. Instead he was enraged. And you can see that these marriages were not exactly marriages of long dating and intense love. It's whatever the father wanted to do. So Samson says, I'm going to do even more violent things to you than I have done in the past. Whatever you did to me can't compare to what I'm getting ready to do with you. It's the cycle of revenge that's characteristic, really, of the book of Judges, and especially so of Samson. You see, because of Samson's sin. So in spite of all of this, of Samson being taken away by what his eyes see, we're going to see that the Lord accomplishes his purpose, even in the midst of all of this. The next few verses, verses 4 through 8, say this. Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and turned the foxes tail to tail and put one torch in the middle between two tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain along with vineyards and groves. Then the Philistines said, Who did this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I will quit. 
He struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter, and he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Etam. The violence continues. Can you imagine capturing 300 foxes? I don't know how. (laughs) Tying them together by twos and putting a torch between their tails and letting them loose into the grain fields of the Philistines. Now this is the time of year where the grain is beginning to be harvested and it's dry. And so not only does he go through the do they go through the grain fields and burn up the growing grain, but they also burn up what's already been harvested. They also burn up the vineyards with the grapes and they burn up the groves where all the olive trees are being burned. Now, this is a devastating calamity for the Philistines because this, what Samson is doing is threatening their very survival. Everything that they need for food, everything they need for trade, for barter, for their daily living, the olive was, was just vastly important to these people. They used it for everything. They used it for their food. They used it for... Uh, every kind of thing you can imagine, plus selling it to get money. And then the grain is gone. So their economy is devastated, and the obvious question is, who did this? So their very survivability has been attacked. And so they go to, instead of, doing something to Samson after they find out that he's the one that did this, they go and they burn Samson's wife and her father. So before she gave the answer to the riddle because they threatened to burn her, and now after Samson does something, they do exactly that. And she's the one that said to Samson, these are my people, not your people. But her people are the ones that burn her alive and her father and their household. So this is the kind of people. And the question that comes to mind, what in the world is Samson doing among these people to begin with? This is the kind of people that he is constantly being involved with. Everything escalates. Violence, hatred, sin. A great tragedy. The book of Exodus talks about, and also it's in Leviticus and even in Numbers, talks about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand. And that sounds like really harsh judgment, but it's not the way it sounds. Because what it's really meant to do is to refrain people from going an extra load of violence against somebody else. It's What it means is that the punishment should fit the crime. You kill my dog, I don't kill your herd of cattle. It's to keep violence from escalating. And there's no evidence in Scripture that this was ever actually carried out by the Israelis. The only instance it ever shows is where people were beaten when something like this happened. But never that they actually took an eye for an eye, or they took a limb for a limb. But all of this just means the punishment should fit the crime. It's meant to restrain people from 
blood vengeance, where, where the feud never ends. But you see that this is not the case with Samson. If you, if you look here, you see before there were 30 changes of clothing involved. And now what have you got? You've got 300 foxes. It's times 10. So it's escalated way beyond what it was before. If we look at the next series of verses, Samson, it said he struck them down and then he went and lived in the cleft of the rock. And it says, Then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lehi. The men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? Talking to the Philistines. And they said, We've come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Revenge again. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Don't you know this? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. They said to him, We have come down to bind you so that you may so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me. So they went. So they said, Yeah, excuse me. So they said to them, No, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands. Yet surely we will not kill you. Then they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. If you go to the first chapter of Judges, you'll see that the people that were the strongest going into the promised land, the ones that did everything that that God said, was the tribe of Judah. Now here you've got the tribe of Judah. After 40 years of being under the rule of the Philistines, cowering, not making any effort whatsoever to protect one of their own people. They're, they're afraid, 3,000 of them, and they're not doing anything to the Philistines, but they're willing to turn Samson over because they're afraid for themselves. You know, we might be slaves, but we've got a little bit, and we don't want to lose that. So Samson, we're going to, you know, we want to bind you. And so Samson says, okay, I'll let myself be bound by you as long as you promise not to kill me. And they do that. Now, why in the world they would think that ropes are going to hold Samson after his history is beyond me, but they do. This is no longer a neighborhood problem. It's no longer a local problem. It's all over the country now. The Philistines are enraged, and they come with their army. Samson might think he's done with the conflict, but remember, whether we notice it or not, God is in control of this. He's the one that's leading all of this. Remember, the Philistines are God's enemies. They're not just Samson's enemies. They're God's enemies. They are foul people, 
And what's happening here after 40 years of being slaves to the Philistines, Judah and all of Israel is in great danger of being assimilated to being just like them, to losing their identity and not being God's people at all anymore. So here you see, and it's, it's interesting, everywhere else, the Philistines are ever fought against, or any of the other people that are the enemies of Israel, armies are coming against Israel's enemies. You never see that with Samson. He's the only one. He's doing it by himself. The Spirit of God comes on Samson, and alone he slaughters thousands. Just him. God is using this man in spite of all of his failures, in spite of all of the uh, sin that leads him astray, God is using Samson. So 3,000 men of Judah, but there's no fight in them. They acquiesce, they give up, they say, we've got to take you. So Samson says, don't kill me, I'll turn myself over to you. And then we see what the Philistines do. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him. So they rejoiced, but it didn't last long. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the ropes that were on his arms were like flax that is burned with fire, and his hands dropped from his, excuse me, and his bonds dropped from his hands. You see, fire is a theme all the way through the book of Judges that talks about Samson. At the very beginning, you see the angel of the Lord going up in a flame. Here it talks about his, 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 his ropes being like flax that will burn in a fire. You see him using foxes to set fire going through the fields of the Philistines. And there are other examples where you see fire as a constant theme throughout this uh, section of Scripture. He found a fresh jawbone, jawbone of a donkey. So he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. A fresh jawbone of a donkey. Any kind of bones left in the desert area... It doesn't take very long before the sun bleaches them and they become very brittle. <coughs> so it's, it's got a fresh jawbone. Maybe the teeth are still in it. But Samson again breaks his vow as a Nazarite because he's touching a dead animal, which a Nazarite cannot do. But he uses a jawbone, a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he slaughters 1,000 Philistines. Their rejoicing came to a swift end. And then Samson says, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. When he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand. He gets rid of this thing that has defiled him. And now I shall die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, so that water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned, and he revived. 
Therefore, he named it in hoc Kor, which is, which is in Lehi to this day. So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Most judges judged 40 years. Samson lives a good part of his life that's being called to be a judge, but he's really not a judge. He's just out for Samson. But the last 20 years of his life, God said, you're going to be a judge, and he's a judge, finally. Perfect? No way. But he's a judge. He's a, a judge means a deliverer. He's delivering his people. This is the first time you see the word judge mentioned in Samson. Now he's representing his people and not just himself. What you see with Samson is a man in conflict, internal conflict with himself. God's finally getting what God's, or he's finally doing what God said he was going to do. Samson's thirsty. That's really surprising, isn't it? He just got through killing a thousand men, one by one, and he's thirsty. And he prays. It's the only time you see God or see Samson praying until you get to the very end of his life. An extreme moment when he thinks he's going to die, he prays. We see that there's this seed of faith that's always in Samson. And that's why we, he can be found in the book of Hebrews among those of faith. What it says in, that, in, in the section of Hebrews is that, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. That's what the book of Hebrews says about those that are faithful, including Samson. He recognizes his, his role as a judge, and he prays. And he says, God, you've given me this great deliverance. You've given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now am I going to die? There's a principle in the Old Testament that you see again and again. It's called a principle of reasoning with God in prayer. When you ask God for something, tell him why he ought to give it to you. And if you can't think of a reason why he ought to give it to you, then don't ask. That would keep a lot of people from praying for parking places and for their team to win a game. Is it going to bring honor to God? Is it going to bring glory to God? Is it something God has promised you and now you're asking him to fulfill his promise? That's what Samson's doing here. He says, God, you've made me this deliverer. Am I going to die now? And so what does God do? He answers his prayer. 
Look what God did. He split open a hollow place and out came water for Samson to drink. And Samson survives. Now what does that remind you of in scripture? If you remember the book of Exodus, the Lord told Moses to strike the rock. And when Moses struck the rock, water came out. And the book of... um, I can't remember. Is it Second Corinthians? First. No, it's First Corinthians. In First Corinthians, we're told that the rock that he struck was Christ. So it's symbolic. When Moses struck the rock, it's like he's striking Christ, who brings out the water of life. And in striking Christ, it means Jesus has been struck for our iniquities. He has bore our sins, and he gives us the water of life. Well, here, the water of life comes out of this rock for Samson, and he lives. God provides for his people, even the people that have been very disobedient. It might have taken three chapters, but God has raised up a judge. And we're going to look just at three verses in the next chapter, not the whole chapter. In 16 it says, Now Samson went to Gaza, and he saw a harlot there, and went into her. Well, here we go again. Samson's back letting his eyes govern his actions. When it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they summoned the place and lay in wait for him. They surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, Let us wait until the morning light, then we will kill him. Now Samson lay until midnight, And at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. Then he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. They think they got a good plan. All the cities were walled and they had... Obviously, the the most vulnerable way to get into a city is the gates. So the gates were fortified extra, they were extra heavy and this sort of thing because they had to be open and shut. And so they think, Samson's in the city. There's no way he can get out until the gates are opened in the morning. And so we were just going to wait till tomorrow morning when he comes down and then we're going to kill him. Well, Samson gets up at midnight Samson gets up at midnight and he goes to the gates and they don't seem to be a problem for Samson. He pulls up the post. He puts the gates on his shoulders. And this is something you don't notice unless you can look at a map and you can read what some other people that are much more um, knowledgeable than I am Hebron is 30 miles away. 
So he picks, and it's it's the highest elevation-wise city in Israel. So he puts the gates and the bars on his shoulders, and he walks 30 miles uphill and leaves them at Hebron. The Spirit of the Lord. This is what's doing. And obviously Samson is the strongest person ever mentioned in Scripture by a bunch. So this is what's going on with the man that God uses. Even in the midst of him sinning, even in the midst of him going to a place he's not supposed to go, God is using him to destroy the Philistines or to begin the destruction of the Philistines. It's not going to be over for a long time. But he's going to get rid of these people to keep Israel from being assimilated into their gross practices and all the promises of God come to nothing. So Gaza, one of the capital cities of the Philistines, so again, he goes right into the heart of the enemy camp. And he's not worried at all. Now they know he's coming. They know they get word when he's there. And Samson could care less. He's not paying any attention to these thousands of enemies all around him. You know, the very first verse in the book in chapter 13 where it talks about Samson says Israel was given into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years but Samson has been so effective as a judge that he walks into one of their main cities remember the Philistines had five cities and this is one of them five major cities and he's totally unafraid that's a pretty effective way to use Samson to get rid of God's enemies and that people say, we got him now. They assume that they can handle Samson, but they overlook one thing. They overlook the power of God and how he is using Samson. So God has other plans. And that's why we all, that's another reason that we ought to always ask what details when we read these things are we overlooking? The very fact that he's walking this far, the fact that he's using a fresh jawbone, the fact that Israel is so cowed by the Philistines. Have you ever been, or read, read about anyway, read about some of these communist countries and what happens once, like the Soviet Union, what happens? when it falls the people have been so enslaved for so long that it takes a while before they realize they're free it doesn't happen overnight uh, there's always a saying about Israel that you can take uh, Israel out of slavery but you can't take slavery out of Israel They've been, they've been overwhelmed by other oppressors for so long that the moment you're free, you don't realize it. It takes a while before you realize, I'm not enslaved the way I used to be. And this is the way Israel is. 
40 years, the Philistines. And even after that, there are other people that enslaved them. And why? Well, we know why. It's because one time after another, they don't obey God. They don't do what God says. God says, wipe out all these people. If you don't, they're going to be a thorn in your flesh. You're going to end up being just like them. And so they don't do it. For a good part of his life, Samson is looking after Samson. And the people of Israel only seem to be a secondary priority in his life. But now he's finally beginning to see that he's not the only He's not the only one involved. Now it's the people of Judah too. And so he takes them under consideration. But even in the last part of his life, you see that his eyes are still controlling him. So there's this constant back and forth with Samson. And that's why I say that what we need to do, all of us, is ask the question, If I continue on this path that I'm on, what kind of results can I expect? And if we're guided by our eyes and we're guided by what our heart wants and if we're guided guided by the things that guide the rest of the world, then you can forecast where you're going to end up. Now, we don't bother to ask that question seriously, but if we did... God says, this is where you're going to end up if you keep doing these things. And we can look at other people and see it happen over and over, but we can't look at ourselves very effectively and see it. That's why we need each other. We need each other to say, don't you see what's going to happen if you keep doing this? Show me anybody that's ever done this that hasn't ended up in despair. If you say you follow the Lord then what does God say? You know, there are traditions. Every kind of um, tradition, I guess, has their own way of answering the question, how do we know God is among us? For the Roman Catholics, their answer would be, we know God is here because of the, because of the altar because of the sacraments, because of the, the mass. He's, he's here because it, he, he physically really is here because the bread and the wine are changed into the presence of Christ. That's, that would be their primary answer. For Pentecostals, the primary answer would be, we know God's here because uh, we hear prophecy, we 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 have we have the tongues we we feel his presence and we see it by the manifestations of god for the reformers the answer is we know god is here because his word because his word never changes and he promises never fail we know god is here because of this and that's why The Bible never says, read to show yourself approved. 
It says study to show yourself approved. Don't just casually read over it and go your own way. Take the time to look at the, the Word of God in depth and see what it does in your heart. Because the Word is alive. It's not dead. It's a living Word. And that's what we all need to know, me especially. To not get slothful, to, but maintain a, a life of prayer and a time of studying the Word of God to see what God says and then let it live out in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to do the things we know, Lord, that you say to do. To do the things that um, are profitable in your sight. This is not a casual time, Lord. We want to know that we're on the right road. And we know that, Lord, if we obey you and if we study and we cherish you. And if there's a song in our heart, Lord. So we just pray that, um, Lord, that we would walk in the light of your countenance. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.